0: Hi, and welcome to Cornerbrook Baptist Church. This is um, February 21st, and we are in the second week of being closed from our normal location now at uh, the Cornerbrook Civic Center, and we're trusting that we can get back to uh, holding our services there again at 11 o'clock on Sundays. Last week, Pastor Dan talked to you about the latter part of Chapter 3 of James and we've been doing a, a number of small group studies, but also concentrating on the epistle that is attributed to James in our Sunday services as well. And So I want to, uh, I want to speak to you today about seven practices or seven habits for a, a healthy church. Seems as though we're deluged by instructions and directions every piece of furniture, every new address, every process, every solution, every self-help piece of, of literature we read. Everybody seems to want to tell others where to go and what to do. Sometimes that leads to colorful language. And now we have COVID-19, where it seems so many more people are on edge. Nerves are understandably frayed rubbed raw would be what some would say and people are spoiling for a fight now that would never happen in a church well if you want to hang on to that illusion don't read church history there's a whole lot that happens in church and in church meetings and in church relationships that never make it into official minutes the truth is we all need grace and forgiveness we toss around uh, numbers like we need a 24-7, we need a 365, and for all of the years and for all of the centuries that the church has been around and for whatever time it has left. James lets us know that even in the early church, there were fights, problems, t- turmoil of various kinds. After all, the church is made up of human beings, two human according to a list of reasons for church fights. I thought I'd share this with you this morning. Maybe we need something to make us grin just just a little bit. There have been fights over uh, the approximate length of the worship pastor's beard. Uh, and someone says there's a verse in scripture that says this to be no more than 1.5 inches longer than the pastor's beard. Sorry, but I don't have, have one. There have been fights over whether or not to build a children's playground at the church grounds or to use it for land for a cemetery. Sorry, but I'm dying to know the resolution of this one. There's been a fight over which picture of Jesus to use in the foyer. I'd like to know who took the pictures. There's been a a petition to have all church staff clean-shaven. And uh, if that were so, we'd have some obvious problems right from the start. There has been uh, a dispute over whether a worship leader should have his shoes on or his shoes off during, during, during the service. There's also been a, a big church argument over the, the discovery that the church budget was off by 10 cents. Finally, someone gave a dime and settled the issue. And I have to admit that this issue is 10 times more important than the church's missing a penny. I really appreciate the person who put these church fight histories together. There was a dispute in the church at one point in time over the Lord's Supper being cran grape juice rather than just straight grape grape juice. Of course it should be grape juice, someone says is right there in the book of he- he- Hezekiah. There have been church business meetings about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. Sorry, it took two business meetings to resolve it and the fight was really wacky. Two two churches reported fights over the types of coffee they would serve. In one of the churches, according to what I've read, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. And in the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church in the latter example. Perhaps they started a new church. I would think they would have called it the right blend fellowship. There was an argument as well, and you can understand this one, big issue, whether church should allow deviled eggs at a church meal. But someone says you can do that only if it's balanced with angel food cake for dessert. And then there's been a disagreement over using the term pot luck instead of pot blessing. I understand that concept of luck contradicts the theology of a sovereign God. This issue is very serious, but Good luck trying to solve it. Well, James asks this question. Chapter four, verse one. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires have battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures james writes with a bite you adulterous people don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with god therefore anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world or the world system becomes an enemy of god or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in in us But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, I'm sorry about the way the lighting goes in this presentation today, but I'm certainly not controlling this. I'm in a more or less in my truck in an outdoor environment. You'll have to forgive the one who's controlling the lighting. The important thing to remember about fights is that they have serious repercussions. They are the explosion of emotions that can move on to body parts, the sharp weaponry of tongues and pens, the blunt force of fists and feet and other and other appendages as well. They can escalate into more dangerous weaponry like guns and knives. And fighters, fights give winners momentary relief, but they can have lasting consequences. Problems like separation of one person from another. The losers often have grievous wounds, not just of body, but deeper of soul. Fights destroy an essential ingredient of a healthy congregation, that ingredient being unity. Oneness and togetherness and shared purpose are often lost in the fracas. Harshness, bitterness, and ruthless selfishness are elevated in these cases as virtues. And the result is this, the whole enterprise of the church, the redemption of broken humanity is replaced by someone getting their own way as opposed to another. In time, the position becomes more important than the than the actual principle being fought over. A church fight, even over doctrine, descends quickly into political bloodletting. See, what's often lost in the view of a church fight is the fact that everybody is drawn to it. Our fallen nature loves the battle the pitting of forces against each other, whether it's political parties or adversaries in the schoolyard when we were kids or a pair of dogs who don't see eye to eye. We give unredeemed humanity every reason to discount the message of the church when one member is gouging the eyes out of another or striking a subtle blow at each other through social media. There's no problem to draw a crowd when a fight's going on. But the loser in every church fight, just not an individual, is the church itself. There's always a reason, I suppose, to fight. Right conduct has to be upheld. We have to have right beliefs. We have to sing the right songs. We have to defend the right causes. But it's sad when humans set themselves up as judge and executioner against each other. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not opposed to church discipline. But discipline always has to be redemptive. It always has to ask what or whom can be rescued. It always has to be exercised in love. And perhaps that's why James proposed a few solid peacekeeping principles for the congregations of the first century that still apply in the 21st century as well. And in typical fashion, James delivers them with pastoral bluntness. The stakes are too high to mess around with pious platitudes. They are hard-hitting pieces of good advice designed to help people grow up rather than behave like children who all want the same toy at the same time or want to defend their sacred little piece of turf. Now let me distill these seven practices of a healthy church. They're in our scripture reading this morning. James says, submit. Submit yourselves then to God. This advice has a military connection. It's as though James' target audience are low-ranking recruits, but are acting like their officers, even generals. They need to submit themselves to God and listen to the voice of the spirit, not to be combative and judgmental as they find their rightful place. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from, from you. Satan takes nothing from us unless we first give him a foothold in our lives, some niche where he can gain, gain traction and then damage our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. Thirdly, James says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Like Isaiah in chapter 6 of his prophecy, when he found himself in the throne room of God, it is in God's presence that we see ourselves. And when we do we cry out in our despair because we begin to see who we are we are less quick to jump on others when we glimpse our own fallibility and our sinfulness james says also to wash your hands you sinners let me add another to that and purify your hearts you double-minded see these two actions are the result of drawing near in god's presence we realize we need cleansing. The deeds of our hands are the extension of the condition of our hearts. If we deal with the inner person in God's presence through his cleansing power, our deeds then flow out of God's gracious response to us when we see our true condition and then cry out in our need for restoration. James admonishes the people of his day to grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Watch Isaiah when he found himself in God's God's presence. His words very quickly become, I am undone or I am ruined. See, when Peter saw the character of Jesus, he said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. There's no true repentance without godly sorrow. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is very well known for writing about cheap grace in his time. And we are the victims today of superficial repentance, Christianity without a cross, sin without remorse. And where this is present, there will be no health. And that applies to both an individual and also to a church. And the final piece of advice James gives us there, is humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. From my earliest beginnings in the Christian faith, one powerful factor has been modeled and instructed. The way up is down. We must bow down in order to be lifted up. There should be no fear in us of humility in in God's presence. His gaze is able to assess our every word and understand our every motive. He knows when we seek our own glory and when we want glory for ourselves. He knows whether we live for the praise of other humans or want His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I could never trust a person who would humiliate me to enlarge themselves, to enlarge their own their own place. But I certainly trust a Savior who suffered my shame, who endured my judgment, and took my place on the cross so that I could be a child of God. So if there's one friendship that I must nourish above all others, it is friendship with God, or as the hymn writer said, friendship with Jesus. If I injure or maim one of his children, then I've become like Lot, who preferred himself above his uncle Abraham and inched his way towards Sodom. If I use my words to injure a brother or sister, I've become an Absalom, who openly rebelled against his father, King David. If I fail to show you grace and mercy, and if I fail to do all to open your way to God, then essentially I've become a Cain, who rose up and killed his brother. You see, in every church fight, every political match, every personal grudge, there's a battle marked by a selfish motive. Even if a cause is just, it must be accomplished justly. Truth must always be spoken with love. It must always seek the best for others. And only then will we be healthy people whose lives reveal the true nature of God. This is the God who seeks fallen creation. It's best understood in the character of a father who has these hopeful days when he wants to see a prodigal walk over the horizon and find his home. And the home is where you find welcome. Practice these things. I try to put them into practice in my life. And in so doing, trust that God will bless others through me. Father, thank you for this time we've spent together today, I pray that we will foster peace in our relationships, that we will not gnash our teeth upon others or grind their bones in order to make ourselves look good or in order to to win some kind of pitched battle. Help us to realize that what's important is the relationship we have with, with you. May we love God but also love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We give you praise today for the power of your word and its ability to goad us towards righteous living. And for this today, we ask you in Christ's name, amen. God bless you. And I trust we'll be back meeting in person again real soon.